Hello plantpreneurs and welcome to series two of the plant-based business podcast brought to you by us here at Fevolution. In this show we explore what it takes to create and scale a plant-based business and each week on this show we speak to a range of entrepreneurs and investors who are passionate about creating positive plant-powered change in the world. So hey how's it going everyone I'm Damien and today I'm joined by Judy. Hey. And this is the series two finale of the plant-based business podcast. This series really came together in the midst of the pandemic. We had to ditch our studio recordings and start recording virtually. The beauty of this has been seeing the globalisation of this podcast. We both received messages from people all around the world building and funding exceptional plant-based businesses. This series, we've also had an increased focus on how we can as a movement do more to make our plant-based business movement more diverse and inclusive. This is an issue we will continue to explore into series three. So some of the guests we have lined up for the next series are incredible. We've just started recording episodes and we have some of the world's leading vegan venture capitalists coming in to speak to us. We have entrepreneurs creating businesses with over 40 million annual turnover. And we have leading biohackers and scientists who are reinventing our food system. So for the next series, we'll be introducing a new host alongside Judy and I, who is Stefan Stageman, a partner in Vevolution and co-founder of Shop Like You Give a Damn. So what this means is more globalisation and even more episodes in Series 3. So this brings us on to the big ask. If you love this show, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you're listening and would love to connect with your audience, please get in touch. We're always looking for guests and sponsors for Series 3. And if you're interested, please email me at damien.feevolution.co and we can have a chat about it. Which brings us on to today's episode. Our talented editor, Bridie, has pulled together some of the best parts from series two. So get a cup of tea and deep dive into some of the finest cuts from this series, and we will be back soon. In the meantime, please stay connected with us at Vevolution underscore and at Plant Based Business, where we will publish updates about the release of series three. One thing we can share is that our work developing our new Vevolution platform for startups and investors is looking incredibly exciting. We will be making a big announcement in a few weeks, and if you're a plant-based startup looking to raise money for your venture, you will want to hear this. Again, a huge thank you from us. Enjoy this episode, please share and get in touch. You're an amazing community and we love sharing this journey with you all. To all of you Plant Power bosses, see you in Series 3. Today we were joined by neuroscientist turned business owner, Olivia Wallenberg, the founder of Livia's, which is one of the UK's leading better for you food brands. And when you started, you very quickly went into retail. We read that you were in Selfridges just 11 weeks after starting. So how did that work from the kitchen to Selfridges in 11 weeks? Oh, I was just really persistent. Everyone <laughs> asked me that question, like how, how did that happen so quickly? And the true answer is that I didn't take no for an answer. I'll never forget, I had the idea for the business and everyone thought I was loony. I was this person passionate about neuroscience, very much had always been committed to pursuing a career in paediatric neuropsychology. And then suddenly I had this idea for plant-based, free from desserts and treats, and it came out of nowhere, essentially. But because for me, it didn't come out of nowhere. It was born out of a real problem. I was intolerant to things like wheat and dairy, which meant that I had to be plant-based. I recognised that there was a clear gap in the market for something that actually tasted good, but that was free from the ingredients that I and so many other people had to stay away from. 
And I started to write up to people like the editor of Vogue and um, Women's Health and trying to get some sort of name for myself because I was no one. I had about 117 Instagram followers and they were all, if I'm completely honest, people who had been following me on my private Instagram that I begged to then follow the the new business so I was I was no one and I started writing to people trying to get a bit of press and buzz about me didn't happen Um, and I eventually got a contact detail for the buyer in Selfridges and at this point I had an idea for the product I had no branding I had no packaging but I reached out and I sent an email and said you won't have heard about me Um, and this is what my plan is and I think it's going to be big and I think you're going to want to be involved in it and I didn't have a reply and I sent five emails before I eventually got one and that was because I had been so persistent with getting some sort of buzz around the media and one of my drop-offs paid off so I delivered all of these crumbles to the Vogue head office and the Vogue then posted a photo on their Instagram saying holy cow, we've just been delivered the most amazing desserts. They're free from, they're plant-based, they are delicious. Like, everyone, you're going to want to have a piece of this. And it went on their official Instagram page. How how did you feel at that moment? I'll never forget. I was So my mum had... Um, driven me around London and I was dropping off all of these crumbles in pizza boxes by the way we didn't have any it was like we didn't have any packaging other than these stupid board pizza boxes which was inappropriate for these free from crumbles I was trying to sell as like premium and delicious Um, but she she was driving me around I dropped them off at Vogue and I looked at my phone and I'd gone from this 117 Instagram followers to almost 5,000 in an hour and I was like what what has happened and so I used that post as an endorsement and I put it into my email with Selfridges and I said look you might not have heard about me and no one really has but Vogue has has recognized that this is going to be a thing these are delicious please meet me and so I got a response and I met the buyer and much like what's happened with you guys when I chatted, like she said, I'll give you 20 minutes. I went in and stayed for three hours, which is, <laughs> she was great. And we got, we got on really well. Um, and she, she essentially said to me, when you're ready, we're ready. Get the branding done, get the packaging done. We'll take it. I love it. I love what you're trying to do. I, I love the selling. It makes total sense. And this sector will probably be booming you're right and we'd love to support you in it this week we interview none other than serial entrepreneur grace beverly at just age 23 grace was recently named in forbes 30 under 30 and has built a multi-million pound business empire with her three companies bnd tala and shreddy Can you just talk a little bit about how you find kind of the the margins in terms of, because obviously when you create ethical, sustainable products, it's expensive. And so to run a business, it must be quite difficult to, you know, kind of keep your ethics and keep that sustainable side, but then also essentially need to make a profit, you know, to be a thriving business. Do you find that kind of balance quite tricky? Of course. I mean, I think that's why 
if it were an easy and profitable option, then people would have done it before. So I think that was something that was really key when we were going into things. We weren't going to go in and kind of R&D the whole industry and change it completely and make completely different things. Um, what we were going to do is kind of look at the industry, look how we can improve that slightly without making kind of huge investments whereby there's no guarantee that we're actually going to come to that end goal and be able to kind of come out the other end in terms of that. So um, for us just the important thing is working out what is viable and understanding that we are in a situation where not everything is going to be viable uh so for each product of course i mean it goes without saying our margins are nowhere near compared to kind of fast fashion so um any of these big fast fashion brands um but what they are um is they are kind of fair margins and they allow us if it's kind of profit i think one of the main things um for people to understand is that profit is not raw profit so kind of if we have a margin and it costs us eight pounds to produce something and we're selling it for 35 pounds it doesn't make it mean that we make that difference that is what pays for the other aspects of the business that's not kind of pure profit and I think that's really important to understand because even at some point you know I didn't understand that and I was like well if you're donating kind of 50% of your profits, then you're still profiting off something. No, <laughs> no, but especially for small ethical and sustainable businesses, you are allowing your business to run, you're paying for your offers, you're paying for your staff, all of these things. It's not overall profits because these costs are changing every month. So um, for us, the important thing is to uh, essentially establish product by product what the viability is. And if it's not viable to produce for a good price point, sustainably and ethically, we won't produce it. And we'll just be like, sucks but we'll come back at, <laughs> at a time where we can do this better and we can sell it at a point that would make us proud and that people can buy it um and and that's that really <laughs> that's really important for us and then we kind of you know our factories are incredible at the research side of things as well and getting us new capabilities um and so that's very important for us to be able to move in that direction too but there have been so many products where we're like damn okay just not for not for now and that's also why it's so important for people to be voting with their money because the more you can support brands like ours or your other favorite sustainable brands the more we can improve the actual technology behind it and therefore make more things so that hopefully in future it will be nowhere near as expensive but the only thing it won't compromise is that labor cost obviously manufacturing is really important to you and one of the things we hear a lot on this podcast is the struggle of finding a good co-packer manufacturer to work with because you're trying to create something that is not only looks great and is at the very top of the sort of fashion industry especially with Tala you know but you're creating something that is um sustainable and you know good for the planet how do you how did you go about finding factories who shared the same vision as you so I was very lucky in that I'd obviously developed a kind of CV for myself in the way that I'd done my previous business so um it gave me a bit more leverage when going to people and saying hey like I want to do this what could you give me for that if you're going to get involved too? Um, I understood as well that I didn't want to kind of go at it completely alone. Um, and so I'm, I'm not a manufacturing expert. I obviously have learned a huge amount about supply chain and um, all of the kind of R&D behind it. But I'm not a manufacturing expert and I don't want to kind of just to sit here and do it 100% myself just to say, you know, well, I actually sourced this factory because I called them 100 times. And, you know, like we talk, the important thing for me was talking to people and kind of saying, you know, obviously doing the research, but people who probably, well, in the past were not focused on sustainability, but 
sustainable factories and factories that can make you know recycled yarn and all of that often host for so many more fast fashion factories just because that's where the industry is at the moment but have these capabilities but no one uses them or they're more expensive so you know people don't really look at them as much and these big brands aren't as interested um and so for me it was just about talking to people and then I ended up finding great partners in those sorts of people and it's continuously reviewed process um we don't just operate we don't just work with one factory we work with multiple factories and what's important for us is that you know because the, for example, the main factory work we work at, incredible, the large majority of our stuff, especially our high performance active wear, is made there. But actually, beyond that, there are certain things that we'd never be able to make there because, you know, the original material is coming from Germany. So it doesn't make sense to go from Germany to there. So we're probably going to look at one in that country instead. So yeah, for, for us, it has been a huge journey. And I understand that that is one of the hardest things. I also don't think that I can sit here and say, well, you know, I did it, so you can do it. I had essentially the backing of understanding that A, I had the guaranteed demand um, of kind of past consumers and audience. Um, and also I had the um, sort of portfolio of the fact that I'd done a similar thing with a business before. Um, and so could kind of guarantee that side of things. And also understanding that my... My strength is very heavily within the market understanding and the marketing itself and the conceptual side. So I need to partner with someone whose strength is in the production and manufacturing and all of those things, whether that is on a kind of strictly partnership basis or whether that is outsourcing, whatever it might be. Um, But for me, it took understanding that to understand that that's how you kind of build a business and that's how you source the right things. We have three main technologies right now. And really underlying all of Bolt Threads is this vision and mission that we can bring biomaterials um, inspired by nature in a much more sustainable way at scale as products. David Bresler, co-founder of Bolt Threads. I think entrepreneurs actually inherently, most of us have a curious nature. Mm -hmm. And from what you're saying, you're incredibly curious. Mm -hmm. You would just jump in around wanting to learn everything you could. And so... It's a, as we know, it's a constant um, learning curve right. being an entrepreneur. So it kind of makes sense that you fell, I guess, fell into it, uh, essentially. And I, I saw, I, I watched a video where you were talking about that period where you were trying to mimic um, spider silk. Mm-hmm. And and then you, you found your co-founders. And so what was the idea then when you got together to create bolt threads with them? <laughs> um, I, I laugh because... Th- Looking back now, 10 years later, the youthful hubris or the naivete um, is cute, um, it, but it was necessary um, in terms of just how much easier we thought the whole process would be. We, we also didn't realize how great of an impact we could have back then. But the process was um, essentially, I was building in graduate school, I, the, the, t- at the time I was in graduate school, biomimetics was a very hot topic. Everybody in engineering was talking about what can we learn from nature? Why, how can we study like you know lotus leaves that are hydrophobic? Things like that. All these examples in nature. How can we study them and mimic them to make everything more aerodynamic cars and planes and and more hydrodynamic boats and new materials and Spider silk 
uh, was just, you know, this interesting sort of holy grail of materials, understanding why spider silk was so light and so strong. How did that work? And I started looking into how spiders make silk because I was really into the material science of it. And I happened to be working in a lab that was building microsystems. And so I thought I'd use all my, all my know-how for building tools to build a or not synthetic, but biomimetic artificial silk gland. Um, because I believe that if we could replicate the system, then maybe we could understand it better. Maybe we could make super strong silk fibers. I got so myopically focused and obsessed on that when I finally took a breath of air and said, aha, you know, I built it, Eureka. I realized I had no way to test it. I built the system to mimic the gland, but I didn't have the protein that the spiders make. Um, and I, you know, it, it just, it sounds silly at the time, but I had just gone with this assumption that eventually people knew how to make proteins recombinantly, I could just open a catalog and buy one. I just assumed that. Turns out you can't do that for all proteins. And silk in particular is a very complex protein. So someone pointed to me, me to a lab across uh, the bay at UC San Francisco, I was at UC Berkeley, where they were working on engineering microbes to secrete spider silk protein. And I said, hey guys, I need, I need your material. Um, to test, you know, my thesis depends on this. And they said, you know, this is a really challenging problem and we're working hard on it. And we don't, you know, we don't have an answer yet. And we kept, we just decided to start meeting up every, you know, every other week, every month, I think, then every other week. And we got along and we talked about what was the latest and greatest in spider silk research. And then one day after eight months, a year of this, um, they said, they took me out to, lunch we went to a, a san francisco sandwich shop well-known ike's and said hey we should start a company and i think i looked at them very confused like we haven't built anything and they they walked me through the logic which was we had spent so long figuring out how one would make spider silk at the large spider silk fibers at the large scale from protein all the way through, through to fiber. We actually thought we, if you put pen to paper, we actually had an idea as to how to do it um, in a large scale economical fashion. And we didn't know yet what we would use it for. We had a lot of ideas and I sort of thought about it. I hemmed and hawed for, I think all of 20 hours, if even, but I was 26. I had an two more years of funding, I think, in graduate school in case it didn't work out and said, okay, let's do it. So we just wrote a bunch of government grants. Worst case scenario was we didn't get the grants and continued in graduate school and saw whatever happened next. Best case scenario, we got the grants and started and we had a 100% success rate. We got all the government grants. And oh, wow. so we quickly finished up our theses and, but if that's what it takes, so in those early days, I guess what I'm interested in is who were your kind of customers? Were there customers or was it a case of working on the technology, raising the money and just kind of dry building the innovation? It was really working on the technology and trying to show customer, customer interest. And we always had just enough interest to make, to compel investors that there was something here. 
but there's, it, but it, there's another round but for some reason it never <laughs> it wasn't until um you know again it wasn't really until stella mccartney visited us with all due credit actually to patagonia and i see you're wearing a patagonia shirt they were a, patagonia was ahead of the curve the outdoor industry is very ahead of the curve Stella changed the game for us in terms of making technology acceptable to luxury, making veganism, vegetarian, sustainable, inspired by nature, all those aspects very cool. So that opened up a lot of doors and we had a lot more people willing to engage in conversation. And we had to spend a lot of time saying, you know, this is a new innovation. This is a biological based innovation. Um, And that has very different economics, very different scale-up timelines than petrochemistry. And spent a lot of time educating people until, you know, the time that the timing worked out such that the world was ready for us. You know, at least a hundred venture capitalists and they're like, oh, you're such an impressive founder, but you know, we're not going to invest. Meanwhile, I had a purchase order from Target in my hands. I'm like, I have a huge company who wants to put me on their shelf. And they're like, oh, no, we'll pass. So it it was definitely tough. But I think, again, everything happens for a reason, because I could have been taking money from from someone who didn't believe in my vision. Mm -hmm. And and that's a tough relationship to have. Today, I'm joined by Wall Street stockbroker turned beauty business owner, Melissa Butler, founder of The Lip Bar. That's like absolutely shocking. I think there's such a problem, like, you know, not only just for, for women, because for women to get investment, there's still a barrier, but for black women absolutely. to get investment, there's like an even bigger barrier. And like, it's something that I, you know, when me and Damon created Revolution, we quickly realized there was like, you know, there was something going on in the plant-based business space where, you know, you look at kind of like other areas and you kind of see, you know, black women leading incredible businesses, but in the, in the plant-based business space, like it's not so much. And we were just, you know, wondering why that is and like what we can do as well as like the like a plant-based business kind of community and movement to be better allies and to kind of you know highlight what's going on but to be able to give opportunities and like what do you think like the kind of plant-based business community can do to like you know provide these opportunities and I think especially for like you know going from startup to scale up because you know especially in the UK and London there's like um, and Europe, like there's so many amazing, you know, black owned businesses, vegan businesses, but a lot of them in the kind of early stage startup stage, but there mm-hmm. aren't that many in the kind of, you know, in the, the stage that you're in at the moment. Like, do you see like a way of kind of that bridging that sort of gap and like what, like, I guess, pe- like business leaders can do better? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think it's just a matter of like understanding that just because that company is run by a black person or just because that that company may have you know black people in their marketing it doesn't mean that you're excluded from that experience mm-hmm. so for instance at the lip bar you know we're selling vegan and cruelty free and easy to use makeup now we're selling it for all complexions we we literally serve every single complexion but at a trade show for instance if our um marketing has two black women and a white woman or a black woman and an Asian woman, people still will come up to our booth and say, oh, is this only for for women of color? And it's like, no, it's it's makeup. It's makeup is for everyone. So there's this kind of like conditioning that, you know, it's like if if you don't see yourself, um, you know, then you feel like it's not for you. Whereas like on the opposite end of the spectrum, 
oftentimes black people don't really see themselves in marketing and they they're spending their dollars anyway so i think the biggest thing is just making sure that that we are shopping with high quality brands no matter their race and especially if it is like you know a black person or asian person or indian person not not using their race or their their marketing against them to say oh i'm not included in this yeah definitely and i really feel like there needs to be a lot of work done within the investment in the investment space like what you were saying to to not you know that the fact that you had you know a purchase order from like one of the hugest kind of retailers <laughs> in america and you were still getting turned down that's just it speaks volumes and that that shouldn't that, that shouldn't happen and there needs to be far more you know kind of opportunities in that space and i saw that you're also you've created something called the black pack to to kind yeah. of yeah and so in the u.s things uh, things are really really crazy like the racial injustice here is it's honestly it's unfathomable and it's been like this for many years and some years it goes unnoticed some years you know it's at the forefront and 2020 has been one of those years where it's really at the forefront but a lot of it is just systemic where it's really been happening for the last 400 years whether that's you know black people being able to get bank loans or you know uh, a mortgage or you know a business loan um, in order to like provide economic freedom for themselves like a lot oftentimes those opportunities have been um, have not been available mm -hmm. to black people in this country and and also like black people in America have and a tremendous amount of spending power and if i'm just going to be honest black people consume a lot we have 1.2 trillion dollars in buying power and we're only 14 percent of the population here but what happens is we're spending money with companies that don't reinvest in our communities so it's like all of our money is just leaving our communities and we're never seeing it again so the average black a black neighborhood doesn't have a lot of black owned businesses mm -hmm. and that's not true of a, a lot of other cultures but the reality is black people were brought to this country before all of these like um these programs were set up if you are a person who newly immigrates to the u.s oftentimes they set you up they give you access to capital they teach you they put you in programs you know, for the average black person, we are just American. And so we don't get any of those, those um, systemic favors, essentially. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's that much harder to start a business. If your family doesn't have the capital, if your neighborhood has been redlined, if your mother or grandmother couldn't actually get a mortgage, you know, it's all of these things. Um, and so I just started thinking about the economic empowerment of black people in this country. And I feel like because America is just a capitalistic society, it's, mm -hmm. it's just run on money. It's part of the reason why all of the food is poisoned, but it's just like, oh, you know, everything is it's cheaper to do it this way. And so our goal is margin. So I'm like, you know what, if the language of this country is capitalism, you know, the only one of the most important things that we can do to fight um systemic oppression is also to to think in a capitalistic way so it's like that means don't shop with brands that don't care about you yeah. that means that you should do things to reinvest in your own community and so i started the black pack and the goal is to get as many people to commit to shopping black whenever possible because my theory is just like you know number one black people hire other black people mm. so you don't have that racial bias but then outside of that 
the more you shop with black owned businesses, the more those business owners will invest in their communities, the more jobs will be provided. And then like we start keeping our dollars in our community a little bit longer. One mistake I think young entrepreneurs will make is is wanting to be an entrepreneur too early. And this week we're joined by none other than our friends Henry Firth and Ian Friesby, known across the world as Bosch. You know, we both had about 10 years work experience before jumping into this. Mm. There's absolutely no way we could have built Bosch without the 10 years working for jobs that we didn't enjoy basically. So I think um, a piece of advice I'll always try to give people is to uh, do your time. You know, if you're straight out of university and you're thinking about um, building your own startup, maybe go do some time working in a startup first um, or work around the field that you are interested in rather than just trying to jump into running your own business straight away. Yeah, I got. Um, this might sound a little bit wishy-washy, but um, I would say don't just do it for the money, do it for the love. Like find a passion and sort of absolutely go for it. I think this is the key reasons as to why Bosch has worked is because we fundamentally care about it and we're driven by it and we want it to get bigger and bigger, the, the vegan movement that is. So um, so yeah, if you're like just doing something because, oh, I might make a fast book. Yeah, you might make a fast book, but I don't think you'll sleep particularly well at night. Uh, not as well as if you were doing something that you truly cared about. Another tip would be to not necessarily aim for investment straight away. Um, as Bosch, we aren't invested in at all. Um, we've, we've built our business with a different model. I've run a business before. We worked together on that, Ian and I, and that took loads of investment. And whilst that is a, it is a great way to take in, taking investment is a great way to kickstart something. It can also be quite a um, double-edged sword because you are then beholden to those investors. You you have to do quite a lot of investor management at the same time as your product development. Um, and it's also just pressure, mental pressure for you. Um, so for Boss, we took the decision not to take investment. And I'm not saying we never will, um, but it's certainly not yeah. it's certainly not something we're thinking about in the next few years anyway. Um, so maybe don't go for investment straight off, necessarily. We, it's not a zero sum game, right? So um, there are other people making really amazing videos and we're happy that they're there because I think one thing that we've constantly reminded ourselves all the way through Bosch has been that they're not competitors, um, they're our collaborators. They're our allies and the competition is the status quo for us. So if there are more people putting out vegan videos, vegan cooking videos, vegan food products, um, you know, that means there's more people fighting the fight against injustice towards animals, against climate change. Uh, There's going to be hopefully more healthy humans as a result of that as well. Mm -hmm. And although sometimes it's easy to you know, see someone else doing a thing and go get that FOMO and get a bit of jealousy and be like, oh, we we should be doing that. Actually, it's a really good discipline to be in to like remind yourself that we are lucky enough to be doing what we really, really believe in. And anyone else who's doing the same thing is fighting the same battle as us. Yeah. And we prove that with our Spotlight Saturday thing that we do. So every Saturday we give up our platform to another creator who um, has the opportunity to sort of show their work 
to a massive audience, the audience that we've built up over five years. So, yeah. And we collaborate a lot. Exactly. So, um, so yes, it's a bit of both, really. Um, there's always that feeling, the FOMO, but, uh, but there's always the, the logical perspective, which is that we're all changing the world, every single one of us, um, in a little bit. And the more people we've got doing that, the better. Hi, Plantpreneurs. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Plant-Based Business Podcast. It was produced by Feevolution, and this series is hosted by myself, Damien Clarkson, and my co-host, Judy Nadell. Before we go today, I have a quick favour to ask. At Feevolution, we believe in the power of business to positively impact the planet. This is why we created the podcast, to help accelerate the good work you're all doing in making the world a better place. But we need your support to keep this community going. We've created a new plant-based business community over on Patreon. For just a few pounds a month, you can support the show and growing and helping us to shine a light on the plant-based businesses changing the world. So please head on over to www.patreon.com slash plant-based business and show your support for this podcast and the free content we create. Also, please remember to share this episode in your favorite social network. I can't tell you how much things like reviews and social shares help us and our mission to tell the world about the growth of the plant-powered business movement. You can find us on Instagram at plantbasedbusiness underscore and at feevolution underscore. Okay, keep safe and we'll see you all again soon.